Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, To whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, it's always important for us to take time in prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship, that we are rightly related to God the Holy Spirit. Scripture says that whenever we sin, that we breach that fellowship that we have with God. We grieve the Spirit and we quench the Spirit in His ongoing spiritual life sanctifying ministry in our life is uh, is shut down. He still works in our lives in other ways, but not in terms of producing growth until we confess our sins and we are uh, forgiven, restored to fellowship, shift from walking in darkness back to walking in the light. And at that point, the Holy Spirit, as we walk by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit produces spiritual growth. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're... Mindful of the fact that we live in a fallen world, we are living in the midst of a culture that honors and glorifies self and man more than it focuses on you. And as believers who are living in the world and trying to not live like the world by being conformed to your word, Father, we pray that you would Enable us to focus this morning upon the teaching of your word, that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us, and that he would be exposing for us in our study the areas in our own lives where we need to uh, adapt ourselves to the truth of your word and to remove from our thinking those aspects of human viewpoint, uh, opinions and ideas and values that are in conflict with the truth of your word. Father, we pray that as we study these things today, we might gain a greater appreciation for what you are doing today in light of where human history is headed in the future. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We live in a world today where we see on a daily basis in the news evidence of the fact that the people in this world who are not believers, not operating on the Word of God, not operating on any kind of biblical value system, are increasingly hostile to the truth of God's Word. It is more and more evident that just the reading of the Word of God, just the very knowledge that there are conservative Bible-believing Christians that might actually take the principles in God's Word, and let them impact the way they live, uh, that it angers and um, a certain element of this culture. The, the reaction that they have is, is so hostile. And just because they know that when a believer makes a certain statement that implies a belief in absolutes, 
this shakes them to the very core. Part of the reason for this is because, as we'll see in our brief look at Romans 1 this morning, is that within every single human being there is the absolute knowledge that God exists and that God's Word is God's Word and that it represents the way things actually are. But fallen man, in his rejection of God, is constantly suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And in a culture that has moved into the whole realm of of licentiousness and the whole whole realm of tolerance and promotion of sin, when suddenly people who have managed to anesthetize themselves to any kind of absolute morality come into contact with somebody who believes in absolutes, that ugly little sense of God that they have down in their soul starts to rear it in rear in their opinion its ugly little head and they have to stuff it back down and often their reaction is quite hostile and quite violent and the more we live in a culture that is dominated by uh, relativism dominated by atheism dominated by uh, just pure permissiveness in every area of life the more the reaction to those who believe in the truth is going to come forward. This is simply a picture of the extreme hostility that will be present in the tribulation period against those who hold to uh, the teaching of God's word. And one of the elements that comes out of this is the fact that the Bible teaches that there is future accountability for every single human being, that at some point, We will all stand before God, the ultimate judge of the universe. As believers, we will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ, but unbelievers will go before the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. There are, but there is this principle of accountability, this principle that we cannot live life as we would like to live life. And throughout history, God has built into the nature of reality, moral laws, and spiritual absolutes, that when they are violated, they bring about certain certain consequences. But man, rebellious man, autonomous man, man who has rejected God, man who tries to live life as if there is no God, constantly rails against this whole idea that there are absolutes. The book of Judges in the Old Testament is a perfect portrayal of what man wants to do living in autonomy from God. Twice verses repeated related to that period that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's just the pure moral relativism that occurred during the period of the time of the Judges, and it led to the anarchy and the collapse of all order in Israel at various times during, during that time because of the uh, reign of moral relativism. And that brings me to focus on two principles that are embedded throughout Scripture and specifically in the book of Revelation, because as we go through Revelation 6 through 19, the focal point is on divine judgment in history. It is a a judgment that has been put off until the right time. And this is a major theme, as we'll see, six times between Revelation 6 and Revelation 19, we have the use of the phrase of the, of the word wrath, either the wrath of the Lamb or the wrath of God. And this word wrath is a term that is used in Scripture to talk about the judgment of God, the exercise of his judicial power in human history as he judges man, brings judgment upon man for their sin. So we see the principle in Scripture that God is going to judge sin. Man cannot just sin with impunity, just reject and rebel against the authority of God with impunity. And there are two ways in which God judges sin. The first way has to do with internal dynamics. 
What I mean by that is things that God has built into the warp and woof of uh, the way things are, reality, moral laws, spiritual laws, if you will. The principle that we often see that you will reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. There are certain consequences that will flow from sinful actions. They may not occur. The consequences may not occur immediately. It's not like uh, uh, the, you don't necessarily have the immediacy of doing something uh, wrong and then seeing the or feeling the immediate pain from it, like putting your hand into a flame. It may take months or years before the consequences build up enough and then there are uh, the negative results. But this is a judgment that God builds into internal dynamics. And we often see the judgment come with the cumulative effect of bad decisions. And in history, that cumulative effect of bad decisions can often be quite disastrous. But fortunately, God in his grace often overrides those natural consequences. If we were to experience all of the horrible natural consequences of many of the sinful decisions that we have made in life, then we all know what kind of shape we would be in if we would even be alive. But God has often overridden those natural consequences. On the other hand, God has, in his grace, often restrained the effect of evil so that many people, many organizations, many groups have wanted to perpetuate certain kinds of uh, behavior, certain kinds of actions, certain philosophical systems, and have been prevented from doing so. And human history could be much worse than it has been, but God has restrained evil. That restraint of evil will disappear during the tribulation period. And God also has an indirect intervention that goes along with this internal dynamics where he will at times remove certain restraints in the history of certain peoples and certain cultures and mankind in general. And as we'll see in a study, a brief study of Romans 1, he gives the people over to what they, the evil intention of their heart. So the first way in which God exercises his judgment in history is through the built-in internal dynamics of reality. The second way is what I would call external dynamics. This is when you have a direct supernatural intervention by God in history. For example, the flood of Noah was an external dynamic where God intervened supernaturally and caused a worldwide flood in order to judge those who were in rebellion against him. And the comment is made in Genesis chapter 6 that it was due to the fact that the thoughts of man's heart was evil continuously, and because the human race had become so evil, it necessitated this judgment. We can also think of the judgment at the time of the Exodus, the ten plagues that God brought against Egypt were his direct intervention, his direct judgment on the evil of the Egyptian civilization. We can think of some other examples down through the Old Testament, such as the judgment at times God's supernatural intervention in the conquest. For example, the defeat of the city of Jericho involved supernatural intervention. So God operates his judgment on these two principles, internal built-in dynamics where he uses, uh, he works through the means of, of human decisions and empires to bring about judgment. And then the second category is external dynamics. And we see both of these in the outworking of the judgments in Revelation. But before we get there, I want to go to the background to help us think through this, 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 uh, these categories. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Revelation, I mean to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans 1.18 we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now a couple of things we need to note here. 
First of all, the subject here has to do with the wrath of God, which is the Greek word orge. And orge is properly translated wrath or anger, and it is used as a term for to express the harshness of divine judgment. It is a <clears throat> figure of speech because it is not that God is losing his temper and having an emotional reaction to what man does, because God in his omniscience has always been aware of everything that happens in human history, knows everything that happens in human history, and he has not been eternally uh, angry or throwing an eternal temper tantrum with regard to uh, man's sinfulness. Wrath is a term that is used, it's called an anthropopathism, related to uh, applying to God certain human emotions which he does not actually possess in order to help us to understand and relate to God's plans and purposes in history. So wrath is a term that is used for divine judgment, and it's used various times throughout Scripture. In fact, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says that we aren't destined for wrath, and that is a technical term there for the tribulation period. And in the tribulation period, the term wrath is used uh, several times, Revelation 6, 16, and 17, in the, this context of the sealed judgments we're studying right now in terms of the wrath of the Lamb. Also, Revelation eleven eighteen, Revelation 14, 10, Revelation 16, 19, and Revelation 19, 15, the entire tribulation period is the outpouring of God's judgment on rebellious man. So when we read in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed. This is a term for the judgment of God, the outworking of divine justice within human history. It is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now these two words, these two nouns are linked together by the grammar. They are not identical, but they are synonyms, and they refer to two aspects of the same thing. The first word is a-sabea. The a at the beginning of both this word and the next word, which is a-dikia, that a at the beginning is in Greek the equivalent to the English un. It negates the noun. The word sabea has a rich history going back to classical Greek, and originally it had the idea of keeping your distance from something, and it came to indicate reverence or fear for something, and it was applied to religion in the sense of having piety toward a deity, having a sense of respect. And when it comes into the Old Testament usage and translation and use in the Old Testament, it relates to the concept of having the fear of God as it is expressed in the Old Testament. The fear for God is not the fear in the sense of being fearful or afraid or scared, but the sense that we recognize that God is the ultimate authority and there is accountability. And so just as a child should be motivated to obey his parents by a fear of the consequences. So uh, human beings should be fearful of God because they know that there is accountability and there is future judgment. One of the, <clears throat> in fact, there are two great sermons in American history that were have been published and read and reread and restated. Both of them have to do with judgment. The first was a sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the second, I always liked the title of this one, was R.G. Lee's sermon, Payday Someday. <laughs> Just summarize the whole concept there. But when you have Sabea, there is a respect for God, a fear of God, a recognition of God's sovereign authority over every area of life. But when it is asabea, it is negated. There is no fear of God. There is no concern for God. There is no spiritual life. There is no recognition of God's authority at all. And then that is combined in this passage with adikia. Dikia comes from the 
<coughs> Greek noun dike, meaning righteousness. So adikia means unrighteousness. First John 5, all unrighteousness or all sin is unrighteousness. And so the expression that we have here in Romans 1.18 is that the wrath of God is revealed against those who have rejected God's authority and rejected the standard of behavior as expressed in the righteousness of his character. So we read, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then we have a relative clause that describes this category of men. It's not describing all mankind because there are those who have responded in positive volition, trusted and looked for God, wanted to know more about God, uh, responded in positive volition to the gospel. But this is his wrath against a certain classification of mankind who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the idea there in suppression is the idea of holding something down, pushing it down. Uh, the image that comes to my mind is when I'm really too tired to take the garbage out. I'm just trying to cram the last as much as I can into that garbage bag to avoid having to, to take it out. That's the idea is that it's always going to pop back up. And this knowledge of God that God has built into the heart of man because we're in the image and likeness of God is constantly going to be uh, bringing itself to the surface. There is nothing man can do to change that, and yet man in his in fallen state, in negative volition, seeks to suppress that, to squelch it, to push it down, constantly trying to stuff it down into the basement and the sub-basement of his soul but it constantly keeps popping up because everything in God's creation keeps reminding them again and again and again that God is and that God exists and that they will be accountable to him. And the more they resist, the more sensitive they become to any witness or testimony to the reality of God, and, that, and they just go, uh, ballistic every time somebody mentions that there might be a God. A great case in point was the, some of the reactions that we saw in the film Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, <clears throat> that Ben Stein just came out with. And you see in the reaction of quite a few evolutionists, scientists, men who have double, triple PhDs, that this isn't a matter of intelligence. This isn't a matter of reason. This isn't a matter of uh, uh, who has the better argument? It is at root a spiritual issue. And the root is that these are men who have rejected the fact that there is a God and that man is accountable to him. And so whenever you even mention, well, we're not going to really talk, talk about Christianity in the classroom. We're not going to talk about the Bible. We just want to point out that there are flaws in the evolutionary theory of the origin of life. And that, that there must be, because everything around has a, shows evidence of a designer, that there must be some kind of designer. It couldn't happen by time plus chance, as Darwinistic evolution says. And as soon as they hear that, and, and nobody even mentions God, mentions the Bible, mentions Christianity, but it just reaches deep into their soul and just pushes that suppression button, and they just go ballistic because they can't live on the basis of the, the reality of a God because that means they're going to be, be accountable, and, and that's the one thing that they're trying to suppress. So they suppress the truth, and then the next phrase, in unrighteousness, is really an expression of means. They express it by means uh, they suppress it by means of unrighteousness. In other words, there are, there's an unrighteous thought system that seeks to justify <clears throat> the rejection of God. The reason they do that is stated in verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. That's just a very clear statement. It means that every unbeliever, every atheist, no matter who they are, whether it's Richard Dawkins or Madeline Murray O'Hare or whoever it may be, Christopher Hitchens, it's they know God exists. In their soul, they, are, they have complete certainty of the existence of God. 
But they've been suppressing it. They've been covering it up. They've been drugging it. They've been uh, doing everything in their power to try to stuff this down into the sub-basement of their thought. And you may tell them that they know God exists, and they would say, no, I don't know God exists at all, because they have been suppressing this for so long. But the Bible says that that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So you know as a believer that whenever you're witnessing to an unbeliever and they say, well, I don't believe God exists, you know that they know God exists. You don't have to prove it to them. And every time you're, you, you have to expose it perhaps, but they're in that process of suppression. Well, then we move on to verse 20. Or skip down to verse 24. We see in this passage that... I don't have the other verses up on the screen. Let's just look at verse verse 20. To get the prog- progression here. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. That's the foundation of the intelligent design argument. This is what the scripture is saying is not the intelligent design argument. That's a different argument. But it's the same basis, and that is that within the very structure of creation, there is this testimony. Every time they look at a tree, there is, as it were, a spiritual sign hanging on the tree saying, God made me. And every time they look at the stars in the sky, there's a sign up there that says, God made us and put us here. And see, they're just trying to put a blindfold on and say that's not there. But Scripture says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. It's not fuzzy. Anybody who comes along and says, well, you know, if God exists, he just needs to make it clear. No, God has already made it clear. You're just refusing to accept the evidence. The creation of the world, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The nonverbal testimony of the creation itself is enough evidence to hang them, to hold them accountable. They are without excuse. They can't say, well, God didn't tell us. No, it's all there. Now, The problem is, in verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. But they became futile, and that's that word matayotes, emptiness or vanity, the same word that's used in Ecclesiastes in the Septuagint translation, vanity is vanity. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts became darkened. So the first thing that we see back in verses 18 and 19 is the first cause for divine judgment is their negative volition at God consciousness. The second cause for divine judgment is expressed in verses 21 and 22 that they don't glorify God and they are ungrateful. There is no gratitude. So this provides the basis for the judgment, their rejection of God. And verse 22 concludes by saying, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So in this uh, second result, they substitute the worship of something within creation for the creator. So you have two causes. The first cause is negative volition at God consciousness. They reject the knowledge of God that's within them and that is demonstrated externally. Second, they refuse to honor God or express gratitude. And that leads to two results. One is the internal dynamic that occurs from this judgment, this built-in eternal dynamic that because of negative volition, there are Thinking is screwed up. That just, just to make it clear so everybody understands, that from the very core, their thinking just becomes darkened. It becomes empty. It, it is completely distorted. 
And they think that they're wise. But what God says is that they're fools because they are, even if they profess a belief in a deity, they are basically saying there is no God, going back to the Psalms, that the fool has said in his heart there is no God. So professing to be wise, they became fools. That is functional, if not overt, atheists. And see, the problem is that every time anyone gets away from living his life on the basis of God's word, we become functional atheists. I don't care how devoted you are to the Lord. When Take it as an example, Peter. When Peter denies the Lord, when he's out of fellowship, he at that point is becoming a functional atheist. He's acting as if there's no accountability, as if uh, God's not in control, if he doesn't know Jesus, and he just says, no, I don't know him. At that point, he becomes a functional atheist. Well, that's what happens here. They become uh, functional and uh, operational atheists. Now, all of that <coughs> is within the framework of internal uh, dynamics. They become fools. Their thinking is distorted and warped. And the second result, they worship something in the creation rather than the creator. And then God is going to do something, starting in verse 23. And this explains how God works to remove, when he restrains, removes the restraint of sin and evil. In verse 24 we read, Therefore God gave them over. That's the verb. The verb in the Greek is paradidomi. It's the same word used to describe Judas' betrayal of Jesus. Judas gave Jesus over to the Romans. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. God is, in effect, saying, so you want to live as if I don't exist? Okay, I'm going to remove some of the restraint, and now you're going to fully experience the results of your rebellion or experience them in certain ways. And God giving them over is God judging them through the means of the natural consequences he's built into the system. So the first stage of God giving them over is that they become dominated by the lust patterns of their own sin nature. And so everybody in the culture begins to run around operating on their own lust, whether it's materialism lust or sex lust or uh, any other kind of lust that you have, everybody just begins to operate as if there are no absolutes and they can fulfill all of their lusts and they become completely self-absorbed in uh, lust satisfaction. And God gives them over that. That is God's judgment on a culture. It's not something that is going to bring about God's judgment. I want to make that point because we look at we often hear people look out at our culture today and say, well, the way things are going, God is really going to judge us. No. If you have a biblical perspective and you look at the culture, what you see is this is God's judgment because there has been a rejection of God already. And so he is giving the culture over to just pursue all of their lusts, and that's going to lead to something else. Verse 25 goes on to say, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. In our culture, in the United States, that began to happen in the early 19th century. And by the 20th century, that had worked itself out in a major way in our culture. And there was still a residual impact from previous generations that had honored God and had applied his word but the foundation was already crumbling. By the time you get into the post-World War II era, and especially into the 1960s, then there's just a, a facade left of what this country once was. And it's because there was an exchange of the truth of God for a lie in the 19th century, that man was the center of the universe and that man could determine his destiny. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The unholy trinity came together in the middle of the 19th century. You had uh, Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, 
and Sigmund Freud. And those three men and their, the philosophies that they set forth set up the foundation for, the, uh, for modern American culture. But it doesn't stop there. When man carries out the lusts of his heart, as he continues to reject God, God's going to go to stage two of judgment in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. This is the next level. God just goes to the second level of removing restraint. And the judgment on the culture is that is homosexuality. The women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. See, the homosexuality that we see that has become rampant in Western civilization is the judgment of God on Western civilization for the rejection of his authority in our in our lives. In the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman, burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So this means that there is an internal uh, consequence of judgment on the soul, soul because the lust of the flesh, as Peter says, wars against the soul, so it increases the distortion and the foolish thinking, the darkened thinking, of those that are engaged in this sin. But it doesn't stop there. It goes to the next level. There's a third stage of judgment that God takes the culture to as he removes restraint. Verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which were not proper. This is increased perversion being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And that's where we are in our culture is we want to give uh, approval and recognition that not only it goes way beyond the concept of tolerance, but now these things are okay. We want to legitimize all of these different perversions, and it's really okay because man is avoiding the judgment of God. But what we see in Romans 1 is a clear illustration of how God has built certain things into the structure of human society and human beings so that when we commit certain sins, there are consequences that flow from those sins. And when there is uh, the accumulation of those sins within a culture, then it leads more and more to the internal collapse of that culture. There is the accumulation of unintended consequences, and the house of cards that has been built upon this atheism, upon this rejection of divine authority, when it collapses, it is going to collapse in an unbelievable way. And this is what will happen in the first four uh, judgments, in Revelation chapter 6, we have looked at these judgments as an overview, and we have spent most of the last three or four lessons looking at the first seal judgment. And the first seal judgment is the coming of a rider on the white horse who represents the judgment of the Antichrist. God is going to restrain, pull back that restraint when the Holy Spirit leaves at the rapture. And as part of that, he is going to allow for this evil personage to come forward and to accumulate power. We read in verse 1, I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. And this is the beginning of these first four seals, which are called 
which are all represented by riders on horses, the often referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And these four, first four seal judgments, these four horsemen, represent a natural internal dynamic that God has built into the system. When we get down to the sixth judgment, then we begin to see God's direct supernatural uh, intervention in terms of the judgment. But these first four judgments all flow naturally from the consequences of the sinfulness of man and the rejection of God and his authority. So as I pointed out in the previous lessons, the riders on the horses are not representative of individual human beings. They are personifications of the judgments that God is allowing to take place upon the earth as he has pulled back his restraint of evil. And so the first horseman is the conqueror. This represents the conquest of the Antichrist, and initially that conquest is a peaceful conquest, is represented by the fact that he has a bow but no arrows. And a crown is given to him, and he goes out conquering and to conquer. And we saw in our uh, cross-reference in Daniel chapter 7 that the end-time kingdom has ten uh, kingdoms, ten horns, and one will come up from within them who will then take power over three of them. And that's what is pictured, I believe, in the second uh, in the second judgment. In the second judgment, Revelation 6, 3, we read, When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, and in the Greek this is another of the same kind, indicating another horse representing judgment. And another horse, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Now, the second seal is the removal of peace, and the <clears throat> and his restraint is taken away, War breaks out, and I believe this is represented in Daniel 7 by the little horn taking power through military action against uh, against three of the horns uh, to establish his kingdom in the Western Confederacy or the revived uh, Roman Empire. The horse is a flame-colored horse. The Greek term that is used here is a hippos puros. Hippos is the Greek word for Horse. It's where they got the word hippopotamus. Potamus is the Greek word for river. And when they saw the, this animal in the river, it looked like a river horse, so they called it a hippopotamus. So hippos is the Greek word for horse. Puros is the word for fire. And so it's the color of flame. It's the color of fire. It's a fiery judgment. And it is a picture of the uh, metaphor for the uh, blood that will be shed in the wars that break out during this particular uh, time. This is not a reference to any kind of war that we are familiar with, but this is going to take war to a completely different level. The wars that we have had in human history to this point will pale in comparison to the destruction and the loss of life that will occur when these wars break out during the early part of the tribulation. We read in verse 3 or verse 4, a red horse went out to him who sat on it and was granted to take peace from the earth. This doesn't mean that there was already peace on the earth. Because frequently you have statements in scripture, figure of speech, where you have a negation stated to express the positive. And it's a much stronger way of expressing that there will be incredible war on the earth by saying that there won't be any peace. And these kinds of things are often stated in Scripture. We've seen this in Revelation already, where in uh, Revelation chapter 3 it says that those who uh, are overcomers won't have their name erased from the book of life. Well, that doesn't mean that your name can be erased from the book of life. It is simply using a figure of speech called litotes to express the positive by way of expressing the opposite. 
So when the statement is read that it's granted to him to take peace from the earth, what it's emphasizing is there will be no peace on the earth at all. There will be a world war breaking out at this point that goes far beyond anything seen in previous wars. So it's granted to him to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another. And the word that is used here for slay is a word that indicates a great slaughter. And goes the verse goes on to read, And a great sword was given to them. And the sword that is mentioned here is the machaira, which is a which was the offensive and defensive weapon used by Greek soldiers. It was the short sword that they had, not the longer uh, broad sword. But it is the sword that represents the power of death. And the sword is often used that way. For example, in Romans 13.4, where the government has the power of the sword. That is the power to take life or to give life. So it's used as a what is uh, the figure of speech is a metonymy of the cause for the effect. The sword represents the cause of death. So a great sword being given to him indicates that he is given the power of death. The Old Testament, Jeremiah 25, 15 through 17, we read this same kind of thing predicted of the end-time judgment. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Uh, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. This is the idea of worldwide warfare. Again, we have a parallelism with Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 4, Jesus is answering the question, what are the signs of your coming? What Jesus says in answer to that, beginning in verse 4, is is not related to the trends of this dispensation. He's not answering the question, what's going to happen until you come? He's answering the question, what will be the signs of your coming? And at the end of this, he's saying, and this, that is everything he mentions here, these are the beginnings of of the birth pangs. So it, everything he says here, even though we have wars and poverty and earthquakes and famines and all these things now, he's not talking about now. He's not talking about trends today at all. That is not in the context. He's talking about what will happen at the beginning of the birth pangs, the beginning of the tribulation. He says, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. So there is this rise at the beginning of the tribulation of false messiahs. There will be many who come saying, I am the Christ. You will also be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. This is the intensification of warfare, the second seal judgment. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. The end is what refers refers to the second half of the tribulation. Verse 7, he says, For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Well, famines relates to the third seal judgment, and earthquakes refers to the fifth seal judgment. But then in verse 8 he says, But all these things are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. And then verse 9, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be... And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. That is the martyrdom that occurs in the fifth uh, seal judgment. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And we see in this particular chart the left-hand column there that shaded a uh, yellow-gold color is what we see mentioned in Revelation chapter 6. The other three columns are the parallel passages for the Olivet Discourse, and you see that all of the judgments mentioned in the six seal judgments in Revelation 6 have parallels in the opening statement, the opening half of the tribulation, as described in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. So what we see here in the second seal judgment is that peace will be taken from the earth, man will kill or slaughter one another, Uh, The judgment involves a great sword, 
And there will be bloodshed and death everywhere. And as we go through this passage and we come down to the uh, end of the fourth and fourth seal judgment, we learn that a fourth of the earth is killed during this time. This is in today's population of six billion or a little greater, one and a half billion people will be killed over what I believe would be about a two- to three-year period of time. Tremendous slaughter, unlike anything that we have ever seen. Then we come to the third seal judgment in verse 5. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And the scales are going to indicate value. We use scales to weigh out certain things that we purchase. We go to the store frequently and we buy vegetables, we buy everything by the pound. So the scales represent a weighing and assigning a value to certain things. Verse 6 we read, And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures. Well, in the imagery that we saw in verse in, in chapters 4 and 5, the one who is in the midst of the four living creatures is the lamb who was slain. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. And he says, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. Well, you see, the first seal judgment was what? The, the allowance of conquest. Well, even though it began without war, it eventually led to war, the second seal judgment. War led to the destruction of both the means of production and the distribution of products. And so as a result of the destruction caused by the war, products can't make it to market. There becomes a scarcity of products. Now, economics is ruled by the law of supply and demand. And when there is a large supply and a low demand, then the products are cheap. When there is a low supply and a high demand, then the cost of the goods will go up. And we see that with relation to the price of oil right now. When there is a high demand and demand for oil in the world continues to go up as as uh, India and China come, come online more and more, there's a greater and greater demand for oil. And the supply is limited. It's not limited because there's a finite supply in the earth. It's limited because liberals and Democrats and environmentalists who are worshiping the creation rather than the creator are artificially restricting the supply by refusing to allow uh, oil companies to explore and to produce oil in the continental United States. The liberal lefties out there on the wacko left coast in California won't let anybody drill off the coast of California. The wackos in Florida won't let anybody drill within 200 miles of the coast of Florida. This is insanity. And within the continental United States, it's illegal for exploration and development of oil fields. Well, that artificially limits the supply. This is what happens when you allow liberals of no matter what the party is, liberals and environmentalists who are operating on a fraudulent worldview to dominate the legislative system. And for over 30 years, we've been electing these fools to office, and they're, ba they're basing legislation on a false view of reality. And now we're reaping the consequences. of it. We can't solve this problem overnight because it wasn't created overnight. It, we are now reaping the cumulative effect of making foolish decisions based on a rejection of what God says about his creation. And we're just seeing the impact of Romans 1 in terms of economics. As we saw, it also affects uh, sexual perversion and other things. So this is all part of what happens. So when you have an artificially restricted supply, then the price is going to go up. Now, in the tribulation period, in this third seal judgment, it's not an artificially restricted supply. It's a supply that's going to be restricted because of the outbreak of war. 
and so there's a destruction of the, the entire infrastructure where, where supplies and food are moved from the farm to the market, and as a result of that, prices are going to go through the roof on your basic staples. We're seeing something like that today as we've seen the uh, incredible increase of the price of rice and beans and some other very basic staples. And who gets hurt as a result of this? Well, it's the poor people that get hurt. See, the liberals come along, and in all of their self-righteous indignation, they want to support the people. So we're going to instigate all these government controls on economics. And see, people can't control economics. That's just pure arrogance. So the liberals come along and say, we're going to impose these controls because we think that we can control the economy. We're going to do it for the good of the people. And what's the result been? The result has been that the poor people that they claim to represent, and they really don't, that's just a lie, and too many people want to believe it. They're just... They're just a bunch of Marxist demagogues. And uh, uh, the result of all of this is that there is starting to be, you know, great hunger in some areas in some undeveloped third world countries. Well, in the period of the tribulation, it's going to go far beyond that. And you're going to see people who who are at the lower end of the economic scale experience tremendous hunger. And the verse here says, verse 6, a quart of wheat for a denarius. Now, denarius is the equivalent to a day's wage. So let's say just sort of an average income today, about $50,000 a year, a day's wage would be around $150 to $200 a day. Well, if you're making $150, $200 a day, and that's how much, uh, uh, you know, a half a pound of flour is going to cost, you get some idea of how difficult it's going to be to survive. Well, a quart of wheat is much more nutritious than barley, so you have uh, an individual could live on a quart. Actually, a quart's kind of large. It's more like a pint uh, of, of wheat and three pints of barley. More people could be fed on three pints of barley. A whole family could be fed, but it's not quite as nutritious. But what's not damaged is the oil and the wine, and this represents luxury items. So the rich get richer. The wealthy have the resources to still uh, get what they need, but the people who get damaged the most in, in this seal judgment are going to be the people who are at the lower end of the economic scale. But it's going to be the natural consequence of the arrogance of man that leads first to the international conquest by the Antichrist, then the breakout of, of incredible war, and then here we'll see the damaging economic consequences. And then next time we'll come back and we'll see in the fourth seal that it leads to incredible death. The fourth horse horseman rides a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it is Death and Hades, and the power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, and with death from the third seal. Uh, the, the first is a, to kill with the sword, the second seal, with hunger, uh, with death, the third seal, and the beasts of the earth. So there is going to be a violent reaction and one and a half billion people are going to be killed within a approximately two, two and a half year period. This sets the stage for the fifth seal. We'll come back to that when I return from Israel in about three weeks with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful that as we study these things, we know that you are in control of history. But we also see that eventually the sinfulness of man, the arrogance of man, thinking they can solve all their problems without recognition of you and your authority will ultimately ultimately lead to the complete collapse of all the infrastructure they get, that they have built to try to uh, support their own kingdom and their own arrogance. Father, we know that there is hope, though, because you never leave us without hope, and hope is grounded in the fact that we have redemption in Jesus Christ. He paid the price for our sins on the cross, and because he is the lamb who was slain, he is qualified to come back and rule. And so we look forward to his return, to his return for us in the church, and to his return to establish his kingdom at the end of the tribulation period. 
Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would realize that these judgments are not simply fairy tales, not just something that uh, people have made up, but this is future written, the future written ahead of time. And these are the judgments that are coming. And that eventually there's an even greater judgment for all related to what they believe in respect to Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear. If you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, then you avoid this eternal judgment. And that you are saved and justified. You have eternal life and will spend eternity in heaven with God. Otherwise, there is judgment that's far beyond anything we could ever imagine. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has never trusted Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to believe in him. For he has an offer of eternal life, and that life can never be lost. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study today, recognizing that there is a principle of accountability and responsibility toward you, and the penalty for treating you lightly is judgment both in time and eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.